Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here with my friend and colleague on TRSI, the 65th most popular political podcast in Venezuela. There's a fact for you, Michael. I'm just so happy. I'm so delighted. Uh, we've been working on that market, on the, well, the South American market generally, Venezuela in particular, for such a long time. And the fact that we're making headway there finally is just really rewarding. And I'd like to thank everybody on the team, all the people in the background, you know, that maybe don't get the, the, the credit deserved. This is part of their, this is their success too, Gary. That, by the way, is, is not a joke that's actually true according to the uh, tracking metrics we use we're beating the economist we're, I, I don't I, why I keep imagining in my head when you say we're beating the economist some poor economist tied to a barrel being beaten with an ash plant that's just because you're thinking of South America possibly hmm. and the very fine approach they sometimes have to the criminal justice system I'm not sure what it was that we said that touched the hearts of the Venezuelan people but we are thankful for all of our Venezuelan listeners although I'm not really entirely sure what you're getting from this show. Presumably something. Or it turns out we're being used to teach English. <laughs> I mean, considering how often I stumble across words, I'm not sure that's actually helping the children at all. But we'll move on, because I feel, Michael, that this is one of life's mysteries that we're never actually going to know why. You know, we may have to go to Venezuela and ask. So to start with, Michael, the government is uh, under attack yet again. There's an article in the Irish Times saying that politicians feel that they're under attack from Sinn Féin and that they've started receiving these letters from solicitors from Sinn Féin or acting on the behalf of Sinn Féin TDs claiming that these politicians have defamed them and that apparently Michael is having a chilling effect on what politicians are willing to say. Now putting aside two little things here the first being that non-Sinn Féin politicians have historically not been the slowest people to send out defamation letters either and putting aside the potential that this is a purely political thing and that these politicians actually feel under attack for this Michael they do seem strange unaware that they do control defamation law. Gary, do you not think that that in fact is a manifestation or yet another manifestation of the fact that these people haven't noticed that they're actually in government? You could say perfectly reasonably that if you feel that political discourse and debate and hard but fair and necessary criticism of political opponents is being restricted because of the way our defamation laws are framed and I think more the process by which we have to go to vindicate our good name going to the high court and the cost of all that. Well, if you if you believe all that to be true, then that represents a problem for a democracy and you happen to be a, a TD in the doll and you happen to be a TD in the doll in a party which is in government, you might say, let's write a bit of legislation or, or at the very least, let's have a chat about writing a piece of legislation that would protect that kind of necessary political free speech and pass a law and get on with it. It's like we had our friend from Innes Carthy, the good uh, TD Paul Kyo, given out about the state of the centre of the city on Street. And there was a certain sense, well, weren't you a minister in the cabinet and haven't you been a TD in a, which has been in government basically for the last 12 years? You know, and you've, what, you've noticed recently that O'Connor Street's a kip and somebody should do something about it. There is a very strong sense of somebody should do something about this. I mean, in the case of the, the defamation, but of a whole, other, whole load other stuff, isn't there? It's like they don't seem to know what that big building in Leinster you know, on Kildare Street that they go to work in every morning precisely, what it's for. I mean, a lot of that you can put down to laziness, or maybe they just have other better things to do. Um, better things which they will fully commit to as long as there are no follow-on questions as to what those things actually are. Well, we know what they are, Gary. Well, uh, getting pothole on the N731 fix, getting John McGorty's front door put in by the council, making sure that Fidelma gets the parking permit and the handicap spot, and that has to be done by Thursday week because people are coming to visit, and so on and so forth, making sure that the local primary school gets an extra class. I'm not saying these things are bad things and they're necessary things and that TDs should be working for, but these are the things that get TDs re-elected. And bar you're a minister or a cabinet, or in the cabinet, this is what you spend your time worried about. But don't, on the other hand, then complain suddenly. Oh my God, look at that. Somebody should do something about this. Particularly given that for years, the media has been complaining about defamation, although we can talk about that to an extent because what they want done is not exactly what should be done. Businesses, have been complaining about defamation. Everyone who has to deal with the public in any way 
has been complaining about defamation laws. And the government has said that they will change them. There was a report out this year. There was talk about bringing forward a bill to reform it. I believe McEntee's uh, statement was at the at the earliest possible uh, point this year. And it just doesn't seem to be uh, seem to be happening. And I can understand not doing other things because, you know, you've got potholes to fix. But you would think at the point where a political opponent has weaponized a law which you control, you would just do something about it. You might be pushed to actually change the law purely out of self-interest as opposed to whining to a newspaper about it. Have they, though? Have they weaponized it? I mean, is this something that... Is this a real thing? I, I am told that there has been an increase in the amount of defamation or of legal letters being sent out about defamation from certain parties to other parties. But this is not a new thing. And we've seen a lot of this about Finnefall and Finnegale, people sending around legal letters. I have personally received several legal letters from people in Finnefall because I'm involved in the media. And occasionally you have to call people and say, by the way, is this report of you true? And sometimes, Michael, the answer is not no. The answer is, here's a very, very highly paid legal firm getting back to you. And one of the things that are brought up in this um, has brought up in this piece is that there's a feeling that Sinn Féin is funding these legal letters because it would be quite expensive to bring on the sort of firms that they're bringing on. And I've had exactly that feeling with a one particular legal letter we received from a high-ranking member of Fianna Fáil, which came back to us from a law firm. I don't think that TD could have, in any realistic sense, afforded it. Almost as if, Michael, the party was funding a legal threat to a media outlet. Amongst the many things, I am not like biologist, physicist, medical doctor. I'm also not a lawyer. But isn't it the case that in Ireland you you can't fund somebody else's defamation case? Is that, there's a word, is that champerty? Am I making that up? Strangely enough, no, you're not. You have champerty and you have maintenance. And if you're interested in the technical difference between those, maintenance is basically you going to someone uh, who you think will bring a suit, but which you have no real interest in, basically offering them something to take the suit. Uh, champerty is you will financially support them, and then if they win, they will repay you. Okay. Both are both are illegal in Ireland. Yes. Um, commonly, commonly done. Very difficult to prove uh, because how exactly would you prove it other than having the court examine the accounts of someone to see where that money came in? And the basic principle is this. If you are an Irish citizen bringing a case against someone in Ireland, it's very difficult to have that done. It's very difficult to have a lot of stuff done. Uh, but yes, it's it's very common. But this is the real problem with defamation here. Not so much. Well, I mean, I'm not saying that uh, that there aren't problems with the with the definition of, of defamation and all that. But the real problem is the cost that people are use the process. The fact that it has to go to the high court means automatically you're at a certain threshold. Well, it doesn't have to go to the high court, but you can choose to try and get it into the high court. Isn't that the threat? Isn't that isn't that the, the, the strong arm that if you go to the high court and you and you're you. You're up against somebody who has either somebody who has money is going to go after somebody for defamation who doesn't have any money and potentially bankrupt them. Or if you're a little person going after somebody who has money and they they take it to the high court, they're protected from you. Even if they've defamed you horribly, you know perfectly well that there's always a risk. Any lawyer would say whatever you if whenever and when you can in whatever the situation, try to avoid going to a court. Because you can never really be sure what the outcome will of court will be, and if you get into the high court again, it can ruin you. So money is you in, in and I'm not using the comparison glibly, but I think it's because it's accurate. Money is used in defamation in much the same way it's used by good poker players. It is not just something there for betting, but it's actually woven into part of the strategy of how you play the game. Absolutely, and it's it's. That's the primary way it's used in Ireland. It is used because the threat of even if you win a high court defamation case, you need to win your costs as well because your costs will be so high that they on their own will ruin you. Which is a bit of a problem if, let's say, you have a case brought against you by someone who seems to somehow be able to afford their own legal team, but definitely doesn't have the money to pay for yours. So they're like, oh, you've won. Enjoy paying several hundred thousand euro in your own legal fees. But the way defamation law works in Ireland, yeah, it's it's a weapon, generally. So if you are some randomer on the street who's defamed by the media, 
It is so expensive that you basically have no recourse unless you can find someone who is willing to help you out. On the other hand, if you have money and you have enough money, the threat of a high court action will keep a lot of people in line and stop a lot of things from happening. So in other in other locations, you have what's called a slap, a strategic lawsuit intended to uh, limit participation, public participation. That's the, the meaning of it. And they can be used to, let's say, ensure that the media don't cover certain things because they know if they do, you'll sue them. And it doesn't matter if it has merit, the process is the punishment. And where you were saying about the high court, you can go for a um, for circuit court defamation cases. They're capped at 75,000. Uh, but the real thing about them is that there's no right to a trial by jury in the circuit court. Once you go to a high court, the damages are uncapped, but you can also seek to have a jury involved. And here's the thing, Michael. Once a, If it's just judges, you can be fairly sure whether or not you're going to win or lose based on the strength of your case. The second you involve a jury, you can be 99% sure that you're going to win, but a jury cannot be controlled. And so you can lose a case that if it was before court uh, judges, you simply wouldn't lose because of a jury. And then you go to the way Irish defamation law is set up and, and, and how it's structured and how it's similar to the English system. So it's, it's a very difficult thing to win a defamation case. It's, 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 a, it's, tough, it's tough law. I remember years ago talking to uh, a number of lawyers and they're talking about aspects of the law and one of them was a defamation lawyer and he's they, they all agreed that other than constitutional law defamation law is an, is is the weird the most weirdly philosophical branch of any of uh, of, of the of any part of the law and required quite a bit uh, you quite a bit of particular training and skill you can't you know, they would say that if you're a generalist you could try your hand a lot of stuff but defamation if you're up against a, a proper defamation guy you know you're going to lose this is it's a, a tricky difficult particular part of the law and we have made a break i remember have you come across this again i i, I saw a reference to is ismay making to reform of the law and i remember years ago coming across a story where somebody was restrained or something in a shop basically on, on because they were under suspicion of having stolen something in the shop. They'd been shoplifting. And they took a case, a defamation case. I thought, like, it would be restrained to false imprisonment or something, but it was a defamation case. And apparently, I, I don't know if you've come across this, this is a, 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 an object of concern with small businesses, that this is something which is a, a fairly constant threat that people use against uh, businesses for shoplifting, that you can end up, you can end up being in serious trouble as a shop for defamation if you make an error. Yeah, I didn't see the um, I didn't see Ismi's submission, but no, business groups have been complaining about this for for years for exactly that reason, uh, and there have been cases uh, brought on that. The thing with defamation cases is it's quite difficult to actually figure out how bad of an impact the current law is having because the costs are so high uh, and the potential for it going badly is also so high that nearly all defamation cases are settled. So you, all you do is you threaten to bring someone to the high court and then they have to kind of gauge whether or not you can afford it. And if you can afford it, well, they probably can't. We know, we both know a, a member of the Oireachtas who makes a very decent, shall we say, subsidiary income out of a series of, of defamation cases on the basis that they will be settled on the, the steps of the High Court. Because no, ultimately, if it gets that far, it doesn't matter to a degree how strong or weak the case might be. But if you think you're going to make it, if, if are you right? You think there, you, it's, there's a there's some uh, the the bones of a case. There, where the risk is too great. If you can settle on the on settle on the steps for a substantially smaller amount, but still a decent lump of money. How you can end up being Albert Reynolds? You too young to remember? No, no, Albert the, the Re Reynolds. When I was in college, the the Reynolds case was considered one of the most important ones because he won, uh, and he won a pound. So he, t he took a financially ruinous course of action and won a pound, which is to say he lost God knows how much money. Because that's what they estimated the damage to his reputation had been. The only problem here is that you can threaten someone with a case like this, and they refuse to settle, and so you start going through the court process on the assumption that they will settle... And they don't. And then you find yourself actually in a high court defamation case. <laughs> then you suddenly realize, oh shit, 
this is going to bankrupt me just on legal costs. So, uh, and there's always, that, that is always that is always the game, whether or not the person doing this can actually afford it if you don't agree with them. Which, Michael, I would argue is probably not how law should work. No, no, it isn't. Of course, what has changed the game in many ways has been the arrival of the internet and social media and the online commentary. And there, well, for a start, you get... A, Quite a lot of defamation happening pretty well all the time, which is just simply ignored because you can't deal with it all. Because a lot of these people who are doing the defamation, doing the defaming, choice, have no assets. They're unrecoverable. They are what an old mate of mine used to say regarding his college debts from the United States. He was a lawyer and had massive debts. He said, oh, I'm judgment-proof, Michael. I have no money, so there's no point in coming after me. Safe as houses. And they're judgment-proof because they have no assets. Why would you take them? You're only, if you win, you're, you're getting nothing. But the problem is that you've got, on the other hand, now a growing sense, particularly, I would say, within one particular culture, that you can you can say anything about anybody uh, of a certain kind. And they're horribly surprised. I mean, you've seen this, Gary, as a, you know, as I do, of when people who are not judgment-proof have said really horrible nasty defamatory things online and then get the famous letter their sense of shock that they could actually be held accountable for saying something horribly defamatory about somebody in the internet his album never occurred to them that there could be consequences I saw this recently where someone online who'd be a known figure of the Irish left but clearly doesn't have a lot of money and clearly considers themselves to be someone who could not be brought to court on this because they clearly have no money, said something about the wrong person. And I happen to know that that person took it so poorly that they brought on board Paul Tweed and reached out to that person with a letter. And the understanding there was it was felt that it was so professionally damaging that it didn't matter if the person couldn't pay the costs. They were willing to bankrupt this person purely to prove the point. And they would take the hit on whatever the legal costs were. Yeah, uh, a couple of years ago, somebody I, I knew a little vaguely was in, a, I imagine, a similar situation. And I said, but what's the point? You're going to get nothing. I'll take his fucking dog. I don't care. Um, I don't know if he got the dog after, but uh, he got satisfaction, I think. I'm not sure if a dog is considered a, a standard uh, remedy. <laughs> I don't know if they give you the dog. I mean, that probably is that a member. No, actually, that's right. A dog is considered plain property in Irish law. In fact, there's somebody recently was talking to me about their their lobbying for a change in the law regarding pets because if somebody steals a pet or kills a pet, that you have essentially no more recourse than if they'd broken a piece of furniture. That that's a very bad thing. So, yeah. What kind of reform are they talking about? I mean, has anybody actually come up with any kind of a shape of what the reform should be? There was a report out. There was discussion of it. There was, I believe there was a public consultation. These the steps that they want to change have been well laid out. They just haven't bothered to do it. Um, and it's not clear when they're going to bother to do it. Um which, again, I, as I said, I can understand not changing laws because they don't impact on you and you have other things to do. But you just think out of, you know, basic self-defense, you would do this rather than whining about it. Now, maybe they're whining as a purely political tool, but my general experience is that no one likes having to pay money in these cases. And if legal letters are being sent out and threats are being levied, someone is paying somewhere. Someone's paying somewhere. And I don't, maybe it is, maybe it is actually having some kind of a chill effect. I, I, but they fix it, just fix I have it. long thought that there is an, there is an imbalance in here. That on the one hand, journalists will tell you all the time that defamation laws in comparison to other jurisdictions here do protect public figures to a greater degree than they should and that newspapers constantly will hold back on stories or tone down stories because of a fear of a case. On the other hand, and this is my has been my experience in the past, there is a greater there is too much of a facility for newspapers to libel non public figures. Yes. Small people, poor people, powerless people, in the safe knowledge that they can get away with it because nobody's going to pursue them because of the cost. Yeah, and the, the changes that are generally called for by the media 
media would remove a lot of the threat against them, but would do nothing to help the people that are pretty regularly defamed by newspapers. Now, lots of people like to claim they've been defamed by newspapers. Very few people will ever step that forward, not because of the costs, but because there's no real defamation. But there have been cases where it appears that the newspaper has simply decided that the person they are talking about has zero uh, zero ability to come back on them about this, and they can do what they want. And it, it's horrendously unbalanced, and if we were to go with some of the desires of the press in, uh, industry in this area, it would become even more unbalanced. It would just protect them better. I just also observe that when I'm talking, I'm particularly thinking about sort of the small people who are being defamed and haven't effectively no recourse. I'm not necessarily thinking, Gary, about the Irish Times or the Indo or whatever. I'm thinking about local papers, reg- local papers and regional papers, which have a long and honourable track record of libelling and defaming people in the safe knowledge that they won't have the access to the resources to do anything about it. <laughs> Excuse me. This situation is like a referee complaining that a child is kicking a ball at them. And just like, just take the ball. Just take the fucking ball from them. Like, you are the adult here. You are in control. Why are you whining to a newspaper about this? It also, I'm, I, if this is a political move and they're just trying to set a general campaign against Sinn Féin, I'm not sure this is the best approach because it's just like, they won't stop hitting me and I can't do anything about it. As I said before, you can be good or you can be bad, but you never want to be weak. And this is, like, this is weak. This is feeble. It's a bit whingy whiny. It's a bit sore, sore, sore. He keeps he keeps saying things sore. So he's nice to me. Have you ever seen the video of Margaret Thatcher being asked? Uh, I think it was during the Falkland War. What she thought about the people over in Europe? And her response is just weak, feeble. <laughs> yes, that was that. Uh, that was her response on more than one occasion to him on more than one issue. She didn't uh, didn't like weak and feeble, nor did she consider herself to be. Moving from defamation to censorship, I saw a very interesting article in the Irish Times. It was called Democracies Must Regulate Social Media Before It Is Too Late. And the subheading is that Elon Musk's opinions on Ukraine and Taiwan evidence his lack of qualifications to regulate Twitter or even understand the consequences of his actions. Now, this was written by a guy called Oliver Sears, who is apparently the founder of the Holocaust, of Holocaust Awareness Ireland. And the entire article is about... It, to be honest, it's, it's not a good article, but we won't hold that against Oliver. The entire article is about regulation of these things and why the state needs to step in. Now, I'm just going to give you the last paragraph, Michael, because you've got to remember this is someone arguing that speech and these platforms, at least, should be controlled. And also the founder of Holocaust Awareness Ireland. I'm just saying, if I was that guy, I wouldn't have started my last paragraph with the sentence, the Nazis understood that controlling words is central to controlling society. I just feel if you're writing an article in in support of the state taking control of speech platforms, that's not what you want to bring up. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Rewind, rewind. This is a guy, he wants state interventions uh, in social media. Yes. Uh, basically, state control is what, to stop people saying... Because people are saying the wrong things on society, and he brings up several examples. And he... And just read out the sentence again for the people. The Nazis understood that controlling words is central to controlling society. I'm not sure he's making the point he thinks he's making. I don't, I, uh, rhetorically, I would have avoided that analogy or parallel. Uh, it seems to me unhelpful to his argument. Yeah, just particularly because the paragraph above is about anti-Semitic attacks increasing. And obviously he's founder of Holocaust Awareness Ireland. And then you just, uh, I want to control this speech. You know who else wanted to control speech? The Nazis. I don't, maybe it's a very, it's, maybe actually it's a very clever, confusing tactic. Get it in there before the other guys. But then, but then he goes on to say, in response to their book burning campaign in 1933, the poet Heinrich Hein ominously stated that where they burn books, they will in the end burn people too. Which again, you read and go, but Oliver, why would you bring this up now? <laughs> The, the Heine quote doesn't seem to be the most opposite quote for his particular argument. Yeah, and then, then it just says, we must take urgent, urgent action to safeguard our liberties. And you're like, what is the point you're trying to make here? We must take urgent action to safeguard our liberties and introduce reg- government regulation of a kind that the Nazis would have understood and approved of. I, is that the point? I mean, that's I, I can't imagine that that would be the point that Oliver would make, but it is the point that reading his words as actual words with meaning, it is the point he makes. Um, which I've got to say is a very new experience. You don't 
Because the very next sentence is Oliver Sears is founder of Holocaust Awareness Ireland. It just really produces the response of, you what now? You, you who now? Okay, that's, uh, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll put a link to the article at the bottom of this, but you read through it and you're like, this just isn't very good. It's not very well argued. And then you're like, oh, and the Nazis thought this was right. Well, I'd like to know what he, what point he thought he was making. I probably, you know what? I have a certain sympathy there with the, with the Magari, because I think we've all had the experience of writing an essay or an, or an article or something, thinking, knowing in our little heads exactly what the point was. And to us, it's very clear. And you write an article and then people come back to you reacting to a completely different article, which turns out was the article you wrote. It just you didn't realise that when you were writing it that it was that article. Because in your head, it was a completely different thing. And then people come back and start saying things. And you think, no, 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 that's not my point. I didn't say that. And then maybe a week afterwards, you reread the article. Oh, uh, hmm, yeah, yeah, I, I actually, yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. I, I maybe I, 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 I could have edited that a bit. So I, 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 I can see that that happening, particularly if you, you're under time pressure or something. <laughs> but otherwise, it just seems like a very a strange. Um, somebody once said about met- metaphys- metaphysical poetry was the violent yoking together of of. Uh, contradictory conceits or something and that seems to be to be French in that line he's getting comes to things that appear to be on the face of it rather contradictory and chaining them together I'm afraid we can't joke about this any longer Michael because every joke we make increases the uh, likelihood that we ourselves receive a legal letter because Oliver I don't know Oliver and he may not have a sense of humour it's possible it is I, I don't want to comment now you've said that I don't even want to comment about the possibility about the man having a sense. is it defamatory to say somebody's humourless that damage his reputation amongst his peers let's just leave it at that I wonder if the Nazis understood the need to reform the defamation system. Well, they were very strong on factory cleanliness, you know. And environmentalism. Oh, yeah. Environmentalism, animal rights, um, Zine Factories Act. They got rid of the rats. Well, yeah, you don't see people arguing for, you know, the reintroduction of environmental measures and then ending with the Nazis understood the need to promote environmental measures. It would just be a weird thing to do. No, but if anybody's ever seen any of those mountain films, they know. Unless there's like a surprisingly large, you know, pro-Nazi environmental policy demographic we don't know about. I feel like we're, we're heading towards a whole other defamation suit right there, Gary. So so actually there was, there was, um, there was a little thing. Well, I won't make that joke, actually. Uh, there was a thing to talk about on Channel 4 recently, Michael. It was a show called Friday Night Live, which brought on a comedian... Well, I'm I'm working on. I say comedian, but I work on the basis that if you use a musical instrument in your act, you're not a comedian. You're a variety performer. Oh, no, not Bill Bailey. Bill Bailey. Yes, there's some some people who can pull it off, but usually, if you go to anything comedic and they pull out like a ukulele, yeah. Well, it's a cabaret act at that stage. It's brought in a guy called Jordan Gray, <clears throat> who is a uh, male to female transsexual who performed a uh, bit of a musical act. And then stripped naked, uh, showing the world their breasts and penis. And I don't really care about that because I, I, I looked at a couple of their acts. They're not a very good comedian. So, you know, you have one chance to make a show shopping, a show stopping thing that will build you a reputation overnight. They took it. Can't hold that against them. What I have enjoyed, though, is the reactions of the public. Because there's a certain segment of the public who don't really believe that there can be such a thing as a feminine penis who are neither le- or nonetheless forced to agree that this is a good thing for representation. And the papers have just been full of positive news about this. And I've loved seeing the people who don't really believe that that chap is a woman having to grit their teeth and smile and say, isn't this a great moment for us all? Yes, yes. I, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, I did enjoy the Daily Mail's headline, which was something defective. Stand-up comedian finishes, sort of controversy as stand-up comedian finishes act by playing the piano with her penis. And you, you could see that there was a certain amount of discomfort among certain people who wanted, yes, that's great. Isn't that fantastic? So brave, so very brave. I've noticed that there seems to be a similar reaction to a lot of the online right. Not outrage, because at this point, this is all sort of passe. 
But a sort of look to the people beside you and go, and isn't that great, though, isn't it? The feminine cock. What do you think about that? Which is, it's, it's, it's all, it's all wonderful. It, it's, it's a, a slightly, well, looking for consistency in this world, that's an act of madness in itself. Are you aware of a, a Scottish comedian called Jerry Sadowitz? Yes, yeah. Sadowitz has been around a long time, he's very well known. Got in, got in trouble for pulling his penis out there, actually. Jerry got in terrible trouble. And Jerry's been going around since the 80s, because I remember being aware of Jerry Sadowitz in the late 80s. He has this very particular look. He dresses in black, he has long curly hair, and he wears a top hat. That's his kind of his, his brand, his black top hat. And if you go to a, a Jerry Sadowitz show, you know what you're getting. I mean, if you... Unless you're just somebody who randomly buys tickets to shows and just turns up. And on that basis, well, you're going to be disappointed occasionally. But this is something that Jerry Sadowitz does. But he took his, his winkle out there recently and got in the most awful trouble. And I, I, I'm trying to... Is there a different quality of different... Is it because this was a musical penis? I, I, I've been struggling with... There is a joke in there somewhere between penis and pianist and stuff, Gary, and I, I haven't been able to work it out yet, but there's definitely a joke in there. Is it because this was a musical penis? Uh, is it because this was a, a penis pianist? Or is it because this was a lady penis that this is more... Are lady penises more acceptable than male penises? Is that why? Ah, no, ah. There, we're on to something now. Sorry, hold on. This would explain why, if you or I, who are men, went into a ladies' changing room, say, in Marks and Spencer's, or into a, a changing room in a gymnasium or a sports place, and were to take our clothes off, uh, that would be offensive and possibly even assault, because we'd be displaying our genitals to women and possibly underage women. And that would be wrong, and that would be very bad. But in other situations, it's not, because it's a lady penis. And lady penises are not either threatening or offensive. Well, I mean, if that was the case, if that was the case, then they would have gotten in trouble about the breasts. I know, Barry. Breasts haven't been offensive or dangerous for years. They have them on beaches in the south of France all the time. No, I don't think breasts are a worry. Even though maybe they are a worry because they used to have them in the was it the sun used to have them, but they don't have them anymore. I don't know. I don't follow these things. Yes, the, the sun had page three where they would have both breasts and. Tranchant political commentary from the women. Tracy from Dagenham doesn't like the proposal to increase the second rate of VAT from 10 to 15 per P. I mean, the second order consequences are very important. I think on this, this presents a wonderful opportunity to have fun, Michael. Does it? Yes. With what, Terry? <laughs> Not this. With the fact that a lot of people who say they believe certain things about this don't believe it. And let's, for instance, say you don't buy into all of this stuff. This is just a chap who got his cock out on TV. But if you do buy into this sort of stuff, then you have to start going, this is a woman who got her cock out on TV. Which I feel is a position that while members of the general public may agree with in principle, when presented with the, um, shall we say, singular case, may struggle to explain their support. I think also may struggle, if they don't like it, to explain their displeasure, because they're going to want to be very careful about what they say. I think they should be offered every opportunity to comment on this. Oh, definitely. I think they should be given the opportunity to talk at length with it. And you know what, Gary? I think they should be given a couple of glasses of wine to, while they're talking about it, just to help, to disinhibit them so that they can talk a little bit. You know, in vino veritas. I think is a, is a principle we should apply here. And you, you want to give them a nice gentle opener, like reference it and then say something like, well, how did you come to your current understanding of the concept of the feminine penis? And I, I'd just be very interested to see what the public says on this. But can't fault the, poli or can't fault the comedian. Made massive news. Great help to their, uh, to, their, um, to their career. And I can only assume that no children saw it because it was on Channel 4. You can assume that nobody saw it. I mean, that's also entirely possible. <laughs> to go on to something actually slightly more serious, Michael, we have movement in relation to uh, the housing sector. Oh, movement, yes. With God, yes, movement. Talk about, there's another example, actually, Gary, it's another example of people dealing with things that they don't believe. Are you implying that politicians such as Dara O'Brien don't believe an eviction van is going to help the housing market? I am going to go so far as there was a picture 
we don't know if it was connected to it. I can't remember the caption if it was connected. There was the story about the Leo, Leo and the new uh, temporary cap, Gary, temporary cap on evictions from next month until the end of March, uh, which is being reported now. And it this is a there are an estimated 2,273 tenancies due to terminate over the winter period, and this is understood to be one of the drivers for the government to reach its decision to introduce a ban. So there's Leo and some other nice Finnegale heads all looking suitably shiny and blue shirty, and there's this announce announcement that they're going to introduce this ban on temporary ban on evictions. Now I am willing to bet you five pounds of old money, Gary, that not one person in the Finnegale, well, there may be one, I don't, but maybe a one person in the Finnegale Parliamentary Party, or at least in the Dáil, who actually believes that this is not just a a good policy, but rather that the that bar the possible one, they actually believe that this is a bad policy, which will have bad outcomes, which will have bad secondary consequences. I mean, I don't even know you could call them unintended consequences because the consequences are so obvious. But they're going to do it anyway. And when you have, and I don't believe this is new. I think that this is a, a government and this is a bunch of TDs, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and others, who have passed several pieces of legislation of different kinds over the last, you know, where they haven't believed that these pieces of legislation were going to do good, but actually they suspected strongly they would have a negative outcome. But they do them anyway because they believe it is the politically expedient, the politically correct thing to do. Now, I got okay, last, I'll put it this way. Would you say that we are all pretty well agreed that there is a problem with the small-scale landlord leaving? I'm not sure the left would agree with that. I mean, landlords, Michael, are obviously a parasitical class that should be stamped out. Okay. Okay, I'll, I'll compromise then. I say, or take the word problem out. Would you say that we can agree that small scale landlords are leaving the rental market? That seems to be clear. And we yes. leave aside whether that's a problem. That that's clear. Now, do you think that in a, a, a finical and and by the way, remember on the fifteenth of December, TikTok, TikTok, Clarice, Leo is going to be Tishuk again. So it'd be. It'll be a Leo-led government all over again. Be lovely. That this is going to encourage the small landlord to stay in the rental market. I don't know if you mentioned this in the last podcast, but I know that talking to people in some uh, of the larger market towns around the country, solicitors have been saying, by distance, the single biggest thing that they're doing at the moment is the sale of property, sale of properties, houses, conveyancing for people who are getting out of the rental market and selling. And they said it's not a problem selling. The the, uh, first-time buyers and others are strong in the market and are happy to buy. They are leaving in their droves. This is just one more fantastic push to get them to get the hell out of it. We know. Harry, how hard is it to explain the idea that if you reduce the supply of a good which people want, that that will mean that the price of that good will increase? How hard is it to get that idea across? I used to. I thought that that was something that most people had kind of understood. Yeah. Well, considering the um, the still existing claims from numerous academics in Ireland, usually on the communist left or close enough to it, that uh, in fact supply has no impact on price. I saw one actually recently, um, I think some UN woman, come over and say that supply had no impact on price uh, because what was happening was that um, there had been an increase in demand from international firms. But If you stop for a second, Michael, and think about that, international firms buying housing is demand, thereby reducing supply relative to demand and therefore driving up prices. So there was a very big sort of this is proved that these two things aren't linked when you immediately look at it and go, but that's exactly what you would expect to happen because the, the houses are being bought. That just doesn't doesn't seem to get true to some people, Michael. Now, I mean, you, if you're making the argument that there's uh, such a large amount of demand amongst international firms for Irish property that increases in supply will be effectively counterweight, uh, regardless of how large those increases are, that's a different argument. And it's one you can make. I don't think it's a correct argument. It's not much of an argument now, Gary. It's not much of an argument. It's, it's... No, but it's better than supply has no impact on price. And now... What I don't get at times is when they say this, 
Sometimes they seem to be just saying suppliers knowing on price, but sometimes they seem to be making it that the housing market is in some sense special. And I think they do that because it's so blatantly obvious that in every other part of our normal life, that supply has a significant Im uh, impact on price because we see this all the time. We see this. You see, it on the, you see the price of spuds. If you want to buy a new potato in May, when the, there's basically one and a half acres somewhere near Danes Castle in south of Wexford producing new spuds, you will pay diamonds for them. But by the time you get to the end of June, when they're in all over the place, the price will have come down by more than half because supply has expanded. And this is just something we know. We know when there's a lot of something, it just gets cheap. We know that. We experience it. We live that. So somehow they construct these arguments that housing is somehow a different kind of a thing. If supply is irrelevant, then why does OPEC exist? And why do people spend hours and hours reporting on OPEC reducing supply or increasing supply in order to try and control the price of of oil on the world market. And if supply doesn't matter, why does the fact that the Russians aren't going to send us gas or we're not going to take gas from the Russians, why does that, that shouldn't have any effect therefore on the price of energy? Or if we have a limited supply of electricity, for example, in Ireland, that shouldn't have any impact on the price of electricity in Ireland, should it, or the price of energy more widely. It's, anyway, but the whole thing, Gary, is such a shit show. I mean, on the assumption, Michael, that demand and price and supply are all, all have some relationship to each other, we have the news that the central bank is going to move the mortgage limit from 3.5 times your annual salary to four times your annual salary, a move which even the central bank accepts will push up house prices. Now, I can understand why this move is happening, because with the increases in inflation, particularly inflation related to construction materials, more and more people are being pushed out of the housing market. Now, that never mattered to the government when they were pushing up the energy requirements and thereby pushing up the cost of housing or increasing the um, spend on fees and taxes on the sector, thereby pushing people out of the market. But now the inflation has become such a large and obvious problem, it has to be dealt with. And so they do this. I don't think anyone quite knows what impact this is going to have because you have to balance the increase in this against the people who are pushed out by inflation. But everyone seems to accept there will be some level of price increase because of this. Well, we, we saw historically, I mean... I you wouldn't need to see it. We have seen it historically before when we had bottlenecks in the housing in the boom previously, when you had demand-led intervention. In other words, when the, the problem was perceived to be that people didn't have enough money to buy houses, houses were too dear, and you gave them more money. Well, all that did was that because there was a, a constriction in supply or because, not necessarily, well, we'd call it constriction in supply for the demand that existed, all that happened was the price of houses went up. Whatever extra money, everybody, the first time buyers, everybody got another 20,000. So the price of houses for first time buyers went up by 20,000. Just the market absorbed it. If you don't have concomitant expansions in supply, in helping out a demand, all it will just increase your price. Darrell O'Brien is reported to believe, however, that he has momentum, Gary. He has the big. He has the big mo. Now, the evidence, according to Independent anyway, is that housing for all, his plan, is not working. We have record levels of homelessness, a rental accommodation crisis, and an internal cabinet committee memo warning that key housing targets are being missed. The housing minister, Darrell O'Brien, believes that, quote, momentum is building. Now, I don't know if that's a clever play on words or if it's a play on words at all or what, but he apparently believes that momentum is building. But until we have solved out the problem of the supply. But it's like we're trying. We're just everything they want to do. We still haven't addressed the issue. I mean, did you see the figures? I mean, I'm sceptical about it, but it, it was a figure which was repeated across the media uh, that somewhere upwards of 20 to 25 percent of irish hotel beds are now being occupied by asylum seekers or refugees one wouldn't want to say that you know people were told this would happen or that this was absolutely foreseeable or that we in fact had at the time a long discussion about whether or not telling people that you will take them in when you know that you lack the capability to do so in any real yeah. sense is in fact the empathetic response 
because it invites people to, let's say, come to Ireland because you promised them that you could support them and then you put them to sleep in a tent. You put them to sleep in Dublin Airport. You put, there are 33, I mean, I mean, and I know there are certain people who have not that much sympathy for them. I am not one of those. I think the, if we're talking about specifically refugees from the Ukraine, I have a great deal of sympathy indeed for them. You bring them over, you bring them over to whatever, 2,000 miles over here to give them shelter. And then you, you tell them to sleep in the airport and you send them to the Capuchin Day Centre for the homeless during the day because you've nowhere to put them. This is not an act of Christian charity. This is not an act of an empathetic, sympathetic nation. You don't don't drag people away from a fucking war and then make them sleep in an airport. Oh, and good news though, we've um, we've taken the construction levy, we've halved it and we've pushed it back a year because it'd be terribly embarrassing to immediately get rid of it, so we'll get rid of it next year. Oh, what do that? On the mortgage lending, it, it actually quite nicely sums up this government's problems. You bring in those those limitations because you want to avoid the market overheating and you understand that there's a massive supply constraint. <laughs> you want to be yeah. And then you bring it oh, in, yeah, which on, gives you time on. to work on the underlying problem. And instead, you don't work on the underlying problem and you just keep it there as a cap, meaning people can't get into homes while you don't fix the problem it's there to fix. It's, it's exactly what we saw with the rent caps, where they bring in the rent caps and then they forget they're actually meant to use that time to fix a problem. Sorry, how can you work on the underlying problem when you are the underlying problem? Fun, and I have had people explain why I am wrong to me in very sophisticated ways with graphs and Venn diagrams. I go back to a, a simple question. When you increase the build cost, and that has increased since these figures were done, between thirty and 50,000 per unit because of regulation, which means that the new build cost of the house, including that in a 15% markup, is now build cost is higher than the second-hand retail price of a house in the same area. So, or why do you expect anybody to build houses? People didn't build houses because you couldn't make a margin on them because you had increased the cost build. And there has been no attempt. Have you seen any report, any discussion, any committee looking at how can this government deliberately attack those elements of cost in the building, which we, the government, have imposed? No, you haven't. Everybody else's fault. Everybody else's problems has been looked at. But we're going to solve the problem. They are the problem! It would be politically difficult to come out and say something like, we are going to lower the energy standards on homes built for, let's say, those less well-off. It would be a shit show. We had the highest energy standards in the developed world, and then we went and made them higher. That was a good one. Um, that, that was a good one. With the best of the world, the best of the world, the highest of the world, the most restrictive of the world, and then we we increased them. I remember going to, that was, that was last year, I think I, I went to the department after that, looking for cost estimates of how much that would add to the to the cost of building a house. I think it was 10,000. And they went out and celebrated making houses 10,000 euro more expensive. And I remember at the time that we went through a long discussion of what happens because of the 3.5 limitation and any increase in house prices, which is every time you bring them up, you push people out from getting a house just on the raw mats of it. And you push them inevitably back into the rental market, which is increasingly constricted. You know, so the decisions we make about the costings and the nature of social... social if you're building, you've got a, a, a first-time buyer, young couple, whatever, and they're building their own house or they're buying a house, and then you compare the spec that they will choose as opposed to the spec on social housing. Nobody who's privately buying or privately building would in, would have the spec that you will see on social housing. You wouldn't. You your first. You wouldn't be able to afford it. But again, Michael, it would be politically difficult to do things in this area. Or I mean, can you imagine bringing legally bringing bedsits back after all the work the homeless charities did to get them taken out? Absolutely. Yeah. So the choice is homelessness per- permanent endemic structural shortage in housing permanent and stru- now you know what there is another very very nasty cynic might say that there is a substantial and voting part of the electorate that sees the perennial and permanent increase in the value of housing as not a bad thing because they already have a house and they paid 10,000 for their house in whatever 1979 and now their house is worth 1.6 million and that's a very good thing indeed if my house 
If I live in an area and my house is worth X amount and my belief is that building another 500 units or 1,000 units of housing in my area is going to diminish the cost, the, the value of my house or reduce the, the potential increase in value in the future of the house, it seems to me I am highly motivated to, to object to the construction of new housing. And I think that that is something that goes on regularly across the country. On a local level, TDs and councillors are heavily incentivised to complain against any development because people don't like developments in most of the country, not all of the country. The more west you go and the more sort of depopulated you go, the more you see actual attempts to attract people. But the thing there, Michael, is that if you know that on a local level your politicians are incentivized to do something which is harming your national election prospects, you implement national policy in order to ensure everyone has to do certain things. That only works if everybody agrees that this is... But if, if everybody, on the other hand, agrees, well, this is a problem, but none of us are going to come up with a solution, well, then you're okay, you're golden, because there's, there's no competition in solving the problem. Yeah, the problem is you have an opposition who say they can solve the problem. Now, from what I've seen of their policies, <laughs> I don't think they can, but... The great benefit of never being in government is that, well, no one can look at your record unless they want to look at your record up north. This is true. This is true. I just want to, just before we go, uh, someone's have to go and finish an off, finish a book. I'm reading a book, Gary. I haven't read. I don't read very many books these days, but I have. I have glasses now, so it's it's much easier. Glasses. I recommend anybody who's half blind. Great experience, but. I have to read a book and I'm finding that I'm a bit out of practice. I just wanted to mention, just mention very quickly, in a sneery and jeery and sarcastic way, something which uh, caught my eye. In the middle of all of the great issues and all of the crises we have with direct provision and refugees being brought over uh, to sleep in airports and people can't rent a house and people, families with, with children with special needs are living in tents in parks. And the price of petrol is whatever the price of petrol is, and inflation is over a 10%. Do you know what the Minister for Health has decided he, he would be a really good idea? We're going, to, we're going to ban smoking in parks. People sitting on benches smoking cigarettes, Gary, it has to stop. We have to crack down on that kind of activity. Now, you know what? I have no particular issue, really, with not having people smoking around me in a public park. But... When you really have nothing to offer, when you have rattled around in the bag and found nothing, when you've got to the bottom of the barrel and you've scraped so hard that there's a real danger you're going to go through the bottom, it seems to me this is the kind of policy a government comes up with. What the fuck will we do? I know what we'll do. We'll stop the poor bastard smoking. We'll stop them smoking on beaches and we'll stop them smoking on parks because that's something we can do. That's a practical policy we can actually do. A little bit more misery for the poor bastards who can't give up smoking. I just thought, really? If you can't do anything important, at least give the you know, impression that you're doing something. Absolutely. It's a, a long, long understood uh, principle to me that the politicians of Ireland work on the basis, we must do something, this is something, we must do this, and this is something to do. Anyway, we will be back, I imagine, all things being equal, next Sunday, but until then, I will wish you all well, and keep out of the rain, which is there rather a lot of in these parts. Stay dry and stay well. All the best.